again, dude, I'm so appreciate you taking time. I think this is going to be key for introducing people to you guys' heart and ideally multiplying that of what it actually looks like to just live a life yeah. of significance. Because, again, I mean, whether we realize it or not, I think sometimes people think missionaries are either so close to God that it's just hallelujah, of course, all the time, or there's just seems out of reach sometimes or what do they actually do like i you know one or the other it's like what do they actually do and so i just want to kind of bring it home if that makes sense it does. so yeah I'm, I'm your host dave smucker i'm here with jason stolsus from haiti and him and his wife Amanda and children have served in Haiti since 2010. And so a massive privilege to have you here, Jason. Thanks for coming out. The real heart is just to share about lives of significance. And you and I talked about this a bit before, about what does it actually mean to live a life of significance. And whether that's in business or in missions or wherever God calls us, I believe we can live a life of significance. And, man, I just, when I connect with you guys, I see your heart been in Haiti I see the significance that's there and honestly that's just kind of why I wanted to talk about it today Uh, so I would love just to hear how you got started serving in Haiti um, both yourself and as a family yeah so you said already we moved there in 2010 but before that I served there for two and a half years single and um, it, it happened when I was 19 and just kind of pursuing what life looks like and and where I guess knowing that I was called to the mission field but not knowing where at that point and just received uh, a random phone call from someone that they had an opening with an organization and I went to visit and it just things fit and um, learning the language was easier for me than I don't than anybody I've than anybody else on the mission field and things like that. It just, it just came to me. Uh, four months after moving there, I was teaching phys ed in a school. Uh, the, the language just came super easy. I studied a lot and, you know, it was a lot of work, but it was easy. It just came easy for me. And through that work with the organization, I was able to build a lot of relationships, especially with young people, playing soccer, um, lots of teaching in the school, and dealing mostly with, like, broken families, young men that you could see tons of potential and and feel tons of potential, but feeling like that potential was locked up because of of difficult family situations and stuff. Ended up moving in with a couple of those. They all got saved uh, within six months after I moved in with them. And they remain my best friends to this day. One of them was living in France, uh, got married and moved to France. Um, The other is our closest neighbor where we live. Uh, married now and has a kid and and just doing life with them is honestly probably was my biggest draw back to that area again and and uh, seeing significant impact in people's lives and uh, being able to do life with them you know they've become my best friends and um, when when I came back in 08, me and my wife got married, and then in 2010, after the major earthquake, we moved back to Haiti again. Um, we had tough years when we when we moved back. There was definitely tons of challenges. 
not not just financially. There was financial challenges at times, but it was more uh, emotionally just really hard for my wife, for Amanda. Mm-hmm. Uh, me knowing the language already, I was kind of in my element and thriving. And she uh, was pregnant at the time. We had taken in a, a Haitian baby. And uh, there was a lot of really, really tough things to work through. And looking back on those now, I mean, obviously we fought through all of those and, and now we look back and we're like, wow, we, we learned so much through those difficult times. We don't want to go back to those, but we often talk about and we relive some of those feelings and some of those, um, I guess, learning moments and, and we don't regret them. And I believe... I I still do believe that a ton of our, I don't know, I want to say success really, because what is success is not really measurable, Mm -hmm. uh, what what that looks like. But I guess a ton of our mentality and and not experiencing burnout and those types of things in the mission field is because the people around us are still the same people that were with us when we walked through those things. And they saw those and they felt those and... I believe that them seeing Amanda and our family and myself being able to go through those and not run away and still be there means as much as any words we would have ever said or any project we would ever do. Wow. And I firmly believe that that is, um, that is one of the main reasons for our connection and, and the, the ability to feel a part of that community. Mm-hmm as outsiders or foreigners or whatever you want to say, but we really feel like a part of the community we live in. That's amazing. And um, I think a ton of people come and, you know, you're on a two-year term or something like that, and you just don't quite have that level of connection, that deep, heartfelt, know what it's like to go through stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I don't even want to say that we know what it's like to go through the survival that a lot of our friends deal with because I don't believe that our situation was ever as deep or as serious as, as, as what a lot of our friends have are dealing with and deal with on a daily basis, frankly. Mm -hmm. But there is an element of, of um, understanding the difficulties and things, if that makes sense. You can relate because you've walked a little bit of the journey, maybe not to that degree, but you've walked that a little bit. And it's amazing you're saying, so in 2008, that was 15 years ago. Some of your best friends today are the guys that you connected with 15 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then again, 13 years ago when you guys went in 2010. Yeah. Obviously, a lot more have come along along the way. And and some of my closest group now are are newer people, but those core guys are still uh, the one that lives in France where I talked to him today. You know, we're on a, we talk definitely monthly, there's tired periods where it's weekly, yeah. and then yeah. my other friend from 2007, 6, uh, lives right next door, I see him every single day. Uh, my kids call him dad in Creole, <laughs> his kid calls me daddy in English, and you know, we just, uh, it's been a blessing. Cross-cultural friendship there, man. Yeah. So in 2010, when you guys went down as a couple, as a young married couple, what was the original? Why did you go originally in 2010? So we went on an evangelistic uh, two-week. It was a two-week 
planned mission trip that we had before the earthquake actually even happened. And when, once the earthquake happened, we may, kept the trip, but we kind of turned it towards like the tent city uh, things. And there was a, um, uh, a well-known uh, preacher from uh, Pakistan, actually, that was leading that trip. And we experienced some pretty crazy stuff in that trip. But it was just a short two-week trip. Um, and then after that two weeks was up, we, we just felt, uh, Haiti family, the smoker family was in Carrefour and, and we made contact with them and they could use some help. So we went and helped them for, we lived there for close to a year, I believe. And that's when we met Elijah, our son that we're adopting. And, uh, once our time was up in Carrefour, then we moved out to the area that I was originally in when I came, when I was single. And that's where we still are. So you went for a two-week trip and essentially never came home home, and that hasn't become home. So what kept you there? In the beginning, it was the baby. Uh, the baby that we took in, uh, his parents, his father was killed in the earthquake, and the mother was killed in childbirth. And uh, we took him in, um, not really at the beginning planning to adopt him, but it turned into that uh, because we didn't see another suitable place for him and we got super attached pretty quickly and through praying about it and stuff we just really felt a peace about pursuing that and honestly you know that through some of the hardest times when we look back it's like why didn't we leave and that boy uh, and raising him knowing we would have had to leave him kept us there through some of those hard times and we're super thankful for that now without that link there's a you know it's a very real possibility that we'd have been you know, amongst the numbers of, the huge numbers of people that spend a year or two and just be like, I'm done. Mm -hmm. I've had enough. Yeah. And uh, so we are grateful for that. And having Elijah and that, that string that kept us attached because it definitely made us fight through times that were not ideal. Had a greater reason to stay than you needed to leave, huh? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. And if if you don't mind sharing a little bit, we talked about this briefly yesterday, but you're fostering another baby now. You've done this multiple times. We talked about yesterday about not protecting your heart, but giving it all you got, loving these babies with everything you can, knowing that you may or may not have them with you long term. Share that just I'd love to hear you if you don't mind just share a little bit what you shared yeah. yesterday around that. So it's interesting. We Amanda and I both would have said that we didn't really feel like we were foster family material because we really were all or nothing. Uh, if we took in a baby, it was like we are gonna be in it as if we are adopting them. And even though we said that, it just kind of it turned into that. I think the first baby was Emily. Uh, her mom died in childbirth as well. The dad had already left for another country. Uh, she came when she was very, very young, a couple days old, and the family just couldn't afford to buy formula. And uh, the next oldest, or the next responsible family member was older sister that could have taken care of her, and they just didn't have the money. And we didn't feel either, they didn't know how. So we, we took her in, bought formula. My wife's not here, she would know better. I don't remember exactly how many months we had her, but probably six to nine months and just raised her and got her to a point where she was basically off of formula. Um, and then the sister 
was ready to take her into her home and we still she is eight or nine now and we pay her schooling and stuff like that for her and still help out but the sister does a great job of raising her and stuff uh, but that was our first like foster experience and our other kids were so young that it, they didn't really get it um, we had multiple others Gigi was one and the baby we have now Woodson just very difficult situations and you know we're, we Amanda loves the infant stage and she's excellent at it and so we buy formula and, and just raise these babies up and stuff but our other kids are old enough now to really understand you know and we've done it often enough that they're like man we got another baby now like we're gonna have to say bye mm -hmm. and every time you say bye it's like a funeral in our house everybody's mm -hmm. crying uh, I remember when Gigi we had Gigi for three months and when she left the night that her um her brother and his wife picked her up and even though she was moving right next door where we're still going to see her every day everybody was crying uh, I believe that night Amanda got up at midnight and just walked over close to their house to hear if she was crying mm -hmm. and and uh all of our kids just you know just really fully and in being invested in uh, those kids but we love that and and we tell them now it's like even though you know the baby may be leaving at a certain point or you find a suitable family or family member or something we love them as if they're going to be ours forever and we we tell our kids like don't hold back anything just love them as best you can it always sucks when they leave it's always hard it always tears a piece out but it's uh just just it's been good for the kids. It's good for me. It's good for Amanda. And just really, um, you don't know what that first six or nine or three months, or you don't know what impact that'll have on that mm -hmm. child forever. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we really believe in just doing it all the way mm -hmm. and not hold anything back. Um, I think a child could sense if you're not doing it 100%. It's incredible. So, so your other your children, how many children? We've got four biological, and then we have um, Elijah's adopted, and then Woodson is the foster, and Gigi's still, even though she's moved in with her family, she's still at her house, I don't know, four or five days a week. Yeah. She doesn't spend the night there often, but we, have, we often have seven kids in the house. <laughs> so yeah. it's good. It's love like crazy, and... Life of significant hurts every now and then if you have to say goodbye, huh? It does. And I think every foster family would know what that feels like, you know. Again, I always said I didn't feel like it was me. But we ended up doing it over <laughs> and over again. Yeah. Uh, so, it's good. So, what I'm hearing is you foster authentic relationships. You're doing some fosterings of children over the years and all of that. What else do you do? How do you how do you do ministry? Or how, I know for you guys, you don't really see it as ministry and life, right? It's like a missional lifestyle. So what else are you doing uh, to have influence and significance in your community or in Haiti? Yeah, for me personally, I mean, I love working with young men. I love working with young people. And um, I guess you could say I'm like kind of pretty selective, I guess. I, I, I don't intentionally be selective, but... The way that we live and stuff, it kind of weeds out ones that aren't serious. And I think that starts with us with physical, with the physical side of things. 
Uh, we do lots of physical training, weight training, running, hiking, and that type of thing. And it's all hard stuff, but I think it's really important because it's measurable. And us as Americans, if anybody is good at dealing with measurables, it's us. <laughs> and uh, I, I truly believe that uh, to, to stay focused and to stay strong physically, emotionally, spiritually, and all of that, it starts with the physical because you can measure it. If you, you, know, if you set out for a year and say, I'm going to run a mile every day, well, you miss a day that's very measurable. You know if you missed. And it equates to learning the discipline and things necessary to stay emotionally healthy and also spiritually healthy. Because it's kind of like, you know, when it comes to staying, like being in a good place emotionally, there's no real measurable. There's no real, shoot, you can act like everything's fine. I can sit down and talk with you for an hour and have all kinds of emotional problems and you have no idea. Mm. And I think the discipline learned by staying focused and never missing when it comes to dealing with the physical side of things teaches you the discipline that's necessary to keep yourself emotionally healthy and also spiritually. Because spiritually, it's hard to measure too. It's measured in the spirit. There's not really, I mean, there are physical manifestations that come from being spiritually healthy, but uh, it's kind of a hard, what's, what's this measuring stick? How do you check? Mm. Uh, and I, it, it comes from, I can tell if one of my best friends is emotionally right or not, but how can I tell? It's because I spend a ton of time with them mm. and you know them inside now mm. and you trust them and you're aware of what they're dealing with. Well, how do you develop that time? How do you spend that much time with somebody? That's through tons of physical interaction, you know, and doing physical training on a daily basis is one way that I've found is a great way to ruffle someone's feathers a little bit, <laughs> you know, find out yep. what's inside. Take under the hood and, yeah. Yeah, to see, you know, is there grit in there? Is there determination in there? Is there resiliency in there? And it's all things that you need to maintain a healthy balance in life. And uh, all those things are required for healthy relationships. That relationship with God and the Holy Spirit, like it all takes work. It takes effort, man. Anybody that says like you just get saved and then you float through life and go to heaven, it's not how it works. There's a lot of effort involved. Um, and so I love starting with the physical, just, just to find out what's in there. And then really being able to expand on that and move forward. Um, so that's kind of how we do life. That's, that's how I view missions that way. I view, I don't even like to call it missions sometimes. I'm just like, that's how we live. Um, yes, we are missionaries and, and a lot of, you know, our income and stuff is not from our own. We, lots of people have helped us out and I'm extremely grateful for that. But it still is just life, you know, living life and, and uh, being a good father, being a good husband, being a good friend, being a tough friend at times because that's what people need sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, my wife is the sensitive side of things. I'm more of the, <laughs> more of the say the hard things, yeah. you know, ruffle feathers, yeah. kind of grind the wrong way sometimes. The catalyst or the motivator. Huh? But, uh, yeah. my wife is the sensitive side of things for sure. And so it takes all of us and, um, that's how we view it. That's how we view life. That's how we view missions. And, um, 
that's how we go after people, I guess. Yeah. Love to hear a little bit about the Wabicon community as well. So in 2016, Hurricane Matthew went across the Western Peninsula of Haiti, mm -hmm. right? Did a lot of destruction in this community, about about a 16 mile dirt footpath from the road to the center of the community. Love to just hear a little bit about your first experience um, with getting in touch with that community and, and how you got connected to the community. Yeah, so after that hurricane, there was, um, I believe it was through Christian Aid and some other organizations that had raised a significant amount of funds towards rebuilding that southern peninsula. And uh, they were just looking for somebody to kind of manage some of those projects, somebody that had the time, that knew the language, the culture somewhat. And uh, so they basically hired me at the beginning to do that. And I had, I got, I was extremely blessed to find a Haitian guy from down there that is still a great friend uh, that was able to um, direct me and, and to help to make sure those funds were used in a good way. And it started out with food distributions. We did uh, animal distributions, goats and things. And we were mostly focused on the Southern Road and other communities, people from up in the mountains started to get wind of what we're doing and they would often come down and try to meet with us and see if they could arrange a drop or, you know, uh, an aid trip for the people in the mountains as well. And so this one time we stopped, we were stopped by, it was Fennel, uh, Audenaire, a couple of the guys, anybody that's been up there would know those names, but they were the core group that came down past it was there as well. I think it was three or four people, just a small delegation they sent down to meet with us. And they requested help for their area, and we tried to get a feel for where it was, and they were like, man, you can't get close to it with a motorcycle, you can't get close to it with a vehicle. Even mules can't get in there. And we thought they were exaggerating. Uh, we really did. I just, I, We just thought they were making it sound harder than it was. So we, we ended up being able to verify through um, different people that they actually do have a community up there. And we agreed to do a drop, but I, when we met, when we did the food drop for them, they came forward because we were giving people rice, beans, and oil. And they said, just give us rice and the oil, save the beans for somebody else because we have tons of our own beans. We don't need those. And uh, when something like that happens, a lot of people would just take have taken it and sold it or something. And I remember making a note of that and saying, wow, these people are, they had some integrity or they had... There was something there that really drew me to uh, trying to learn more about them. And I told them that day that we gave them the rice and stuff. I said, um, I will make a trip up there and visit to see how things are. Uh, so it was a couple of months later that Etienne, another guy that we worked with out there, was planning to go up and put a new roof on the church in that town. Uh, the roof, the church had been completely destroyed, but they had built a new wooden structure and they just needed a, a roof. So Etienne, a Haitian agronomist, bought the tin for it. And he just wondered if I wanted to go along and help install it. And I said, yeah, I, I think I would go. So it was me and a group of uh, 10 other Haitian agronomists that did the hike in that first time. And there was a ton of spiritual stuff going on. I About three days before the trip happened, I had a toothache that was just like driving me 
tons of pain. I was nauseous most of the way in on the hike in. Uh, I actually threw up about three quarters of the way in, just feeling terrible the whole way. But being pretty certain, me and Amanda both talked about it, that it was spiritual warfare. There was things happening trying to keep me from going up there. Mm. Uh, so we were able to battle through it and just visiting up there. The week before we got there, there was uh, two kids under the age of five that had been killed while well, they died just from hypothermia, from cold. Uh, it was raining a lot. It was high elevation, extremely cold, and they had no shelter. Uh, people were sheltering under banana leaves, uh, caves like holes, like holes in the mountainside and stuff where they could. Everything had been destroyed in the in the hurricane, and so we did the roof church roof project. And then I remember while we were there, just it coming across my mind, it's like, what would it look like to do a roofing project up here? And the first person I called when we got out was Steve. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just said, Steve, like, man, this is what we're dealing. This is what we're looking at. It's a 15 mile, whatever hike back in there. Do you think we would find people that would make this work? And, and I knew to do it, it would take a ton of work from the community because we can't carry roofing metal that far. And they, anyway, it's a long story, but they all agreed to carry all of the materials in. They carried our tools and food and stuff in for the teams as well. And we were able to do a bunch of teams and start putting roofs on up there. And that turned into just a bunch of relationships. But seeing in Haiti and being aware of the reputation a lot of times that aid type of projects have, um, it was super refreshing. These people were... The most generous I've seen, very, very grateful, and uh, just not the type that took advantage of you. Hmm. And it was really amazing seeing that project come together and and uh, how that all went. And you know, we still have a relationship there, and we we're doing other projects now. Obviously, we're not roofing anymore, but um the microfinance stuff and, and raising animals and hopefully, you know, looking at doing ministry trips there and, and working with the church. I often say going up there, we're not, uh, we're not evangelizing really. It's, it's a huge community of Christians that lives there. They've had a church there for 20 some years now. And, um, most of the ones on that mountain are, are believers. Mm -hmm. But I would view all of our trips, you know, as going in to support the church and support and encourage the Christians. And yes, it will lead, you know, there's other neighboring villages and stuff that that are, you know, deeply involved in voodoo and other things that need the Lord. Um, but the, I would say the sole mission a lot of times is to just really encourage and to mm. support the Christians currently living there. Yeah. And I was just like being part of the project over the years just been incredible for me. I mean, what was it around 565 houses completed roughly something like that. And they went up there yeah. with machetes and hand carved out all the lumber from trees and framed their own houses. And we obviously fundraised for the metal, had it delivered to the base of the mountain and they carried it all the way in, carried all the team's tools in, helped us, served us, fed us. And we were back in there 
Uh, but just the individual stories, I'll never forget, you know, the one trip, I, the trip I was down on, of course, I wasn't moving quite as fast as some, it took us about 10 hours, we had that wet, wet trail going in, but the guy with the generator, he's carrying the 40 pound hunted generator 16 miles for like 10 hours and never set it down, and he was barefoot, walking with a walking stick, right, walking barefoot, and I'm like, how's he getting traction, I was slipping with my shoes, I looked in the mud, and here he had sticking his, there was holes from his big toe, Sticking in the mud, you know, to get traction. Uh, yeah. Who is that, right? Because he's, he's the guy that said, like, nobody else may carry the generator anymore. Like, he's the generator guy, right? Yeah. What's his name? I forget. That was, his name is Finnell as well, but it's okay. the other one the other down by the river. Yeah. So. yeah, so it's just like, you know, again, the project is incredible. The community is incredible. You have these individual stories of just completely legendary people, you know, and what a privilege. So what's your what's your favorite part about the community back there? On a deeper level, like when I look at the community as a whole and talking about lives of significance and lives of influence, uh, we often in our, you know, American culture, whatever, we view that as, you know, Instagram videos or books or, you know, millions of followers or whatever, you know, like we look at spheres of influence or whatever and judge it by numbers. Um... But like you said, the legendary people and just people that when when I look at that, probably the biggest takeaway from that is that my life, even though I may reach tens of thousands of people, is no more significant than somebody that lives there their entire life, faithful to one wife, a good father, a hard worker, and their sphere of influence is a couple hundred people throughout your entire life. A lot of them do not travel to cities hardly ever. And it's crazy, but that that is no more... It's, there's no more power when it comes to a life of influence or, or um, life of significance than just being a solid and believing in the Lord. You know, the ones that I've met up there, they can't read. But yet their experience, their relationship with the Holy Spirit is so real. And and the one guy I asked one time, I said, how do you, you know, like for us, it's like we're going to we're gonna do some Lord time, some God time. And we're going to sit down and read our Bible. Or we're going to turn our phone on and listen to some worship music. <laughs> they don't have those options. Yeah. So I was like, I, said, I just straight asked him. I was like, well, what do you do? You don't read. You don't sing. You, you, don't, you don't listen to worship music. He said, I just talk to him. You know, I just, I'll be sitting there. People think I'm talking to myself. I'm talking to the Holy Spirit. And he talks back to me. You know, and uh, there's one really cool story. That same guy is, they had a few kids. They had four kids, I believe, didn't want to have any more. And the wife was considering getting a shot or, you know, having some type of birth control, permanent birth control done. And he didn't have a piece about it. And uh, he said, man, I'm just, we're just going to pray about it. And they prayed about it the one evening and just asked that, uh, that the Lord would, would close the womb of his wife, that they wouldn't have to do anything. And they never got pregnant again. And he was like, things like those, I was like, that's, that's awesome. The level of faith, yeah. I think that's just, um, it's cultivated and it's, it comes from, you don't have all these distractions. They don't, they don't have a certain way that things have to look like when it comes yeah. to your relationship with the Lord. Yeah. And, 
it's kind of a long answer to your question, but that's what I love the most up mm -hmm. there. It's just the, the authentic, uh, just realness, man. Just, just the simplicity of life. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not easy by any means. Simple doesn't mean easy. They deal with tons of obstacles and difficulties, but being able to maintain, maintain the joy of the Lord and the mm -hmm. connection to the Holy Spirit without a Bible. They have, they own a Bible. You can't read it. You know, it's amazing. And I, I really have learned to just appreciate and love that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's been a challenge to never, to never view significance or influence as a number. Yeah. It doesn't make anybody's life more important than somebody else's mm -hmm. by numbers. So good too. Earlier you were saying a little bit around it's like a, st a stewardship or a faithfulness principle is really what they're walking out. They're being faithful to steward what God has given them. And beyond that, you know, the increase or the numbers or how much or whatever, it really doesn't matter. They're being faithful with what he gave them. Yeah. Uh, the other story I thought of as you were sharing about them and their simple faith was when I was up there in the morning, you would, you would wake up to them laying in bed and they were praying and just talking to the Lord. This would go on for what? Half an hour? Like before they ever got out of bed, they would just, they'd be there praying, you know, yeah. and just praying out loud to the Lord. That's how they started their day. And it's just how often do we do that? Right. Or even just engage with him at that level. But that was a daily discipline they had of like, this is how you start your day, man. Yeah. One, one story about that is that we had a roofing trip. Uh, I think we had maybe five or six people in there and we were sleeping at Fennell's house. It was down at the bottom of the mountain and his father was blind and he lived maybe 200 yards away in a separate house. Um, but he always made the walk over to where we were steep, rough. I don't know how he walked in that stuff blind, but he did. But at two thirty in the morning, the, it was the, it was our last night sleeping there. We were going to hike out at five in the morning at two thirty in the morning. I heard somebody's beginning to talk and here this guy had hiked over in the pitch dark. He has no flashlight. I mean, he's blind. He didn't need a flashlight anyway, but a little walking stick. He walked those 200 yards over and at two thirty, he stood outside our tents and there was a little you know, mound up behind our tents that he stood up on and he started praying over us and he prayed over us for two hours from 2.30 till 4.30 and he passed away now. He's not alive anymore, but that touched me so much. I'm just like, this guy's in his 70s, probably blind and he comes over there and just prays over us on our hikes out and he was praying for our families and he was praying for our kids and uh, he was praying that it wouldn't rain and just everything revolving around all of his prayers uh, revolving around our safety and and stuff like that and it just touched me so much you know just that authentic incredible how many people get up at 2 30 and pray for two hours for strangers I mean, hardly known yeah uh, just it's just really incredible that's amazing man so again you have the local community where you live. You're engaging, building relationships there. You have Wabi Khan up in the mountains, 16 miles, what, about a four-hour drive from your house, 16-mile hike up into the mountains. Obviously, you're building relationships. You're just living life. Um, but then the state of Haiti being what it is, um, the general civil unrest, the gangs, the violence, and everything, what are some challenges that you either have faced or are currently facing? What are some of your biggest challenges? For a while, I mean, all of the gas and a lot of the essentials for life come from Port-au-Prince. Uh, so when the gangs were 
beginning to take over, it seemed like that stuff was constantly being held up. Prices would were increasing without warning and that type of thing. That was a big challenge for like now for whatever reason. I don't think gangs have been there long enough that they get paid off. Things have been more. There's been more of a steady flow. We've been able to buy what we need. Uh, we used to always do all of our grocery shopping. We'd do maybe a monthly trip to Port-au-Prince and get groceries and uh, the best hardware stores and all those types of things. We've just learned to do without those. Um, is it a difficulty? I mean, I don't mind not going in there anymore. I don't really like spending a ton of time on the road. <laughs> um, but we do talk about those days and it was, you know, sometimes we'd go in with the family and stay for a weekend and there's good restaurants and a hotel or, you know, just more options. A short break. For things, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's not an option at all anymore. But on a day-to-day -day basis, the biggest thing that affected us was prices of goods and the difficulty of finding them. And that hasn't been the case probably the last six months now. It's been fine. That's mm -hmm. stabilized a bit. Uh, so, really, it doesn't affect us a ton right now. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of difficulty tied with that. Other than the constant negative, constant negative news. Yeah. And that wears on people. Uh, Haitians are big on getting up in the morning, turn your phone on, you listen to the latest. And the latest is always bad stuff. It's a terrible way to start your day. Um, <laughs> I just you know, turn off the news and just stop. Because a lot of it doesn't affect you. Yeah, just it's get not up, going to change your day in any way. Just get up at 2.30 and pray instead. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, outside of it just constantly being a negative flow of yeah. conversation and news, it doesn't really affect our day-to-day -day life. Yeah. Well, so obviously you've been down there, living there, what, about 15 years, uh, 13 years with Amanda and the family. So when you look back over all that, what is a one major highlight or maybe a couple highlights that you, when you look back in the journey, you, those are the instant highlights. Our biggest, when I say our, me and Amanda, our family, um, the thing that we love the most probably is the amount of time we can spend together as a family. Well, yeah. Um, we do not take that time for granted. And we know you know, were we to move back in a year or two, getting back into the cycle of work and kind of the busyness of Lancaster and stuff like that, there's just a lot more going on. Um, and that cuts out of your family time. That's our number one. And we absolutely love all the time we spend, get to spend together. You know, we're a half mile from the beach. We can, after work or after a day, we can cruise down to the beach on the motorcycle or walk and take a swim and we're always together yeah uh evenings after the sun sets in our town everybody goes to bed mm. and so we're home early we spend a ton of time together and it's awesome we are very very thankful and we we never want to take that for granted being able to do that that's our number one yeah. it has yeah. to be uh, i can't think of anything that we talk about more that we love about our lives wow. and how it's been the last couple of years. So good. And it's fun, too, because when teams come down, man, they just get to hop right into family life. The kids are out playing wiffle ball, trying to get everybody on to doing something. You know, just quality time, man. Yeah. It's amazing. So yeah. getting uh, getting towards wrapping up here, just a couple more questions. One would be, what is one lifetime? If you could narrow it down to one, what's like one lifetime principle 
that you seek to live by or wish to live by? I would have to say, um, the people that you choose to invest in, and I don't know how to ex really explain it, but maintaining um, open relationships with the core groups. I, I like to look at a Jesus life and I think the amount of time he spent with his disciples. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, he spent a ton of time with other people, but he always came back to, it, it seemed like they prioritized time to spend together. Mm -hmm. And that core group for me is, is a very small group. It's less than 12 out of all my years there. But man, I, I spend a lot of time with them and I, and I prioritize that time and making sure that you're there for them and they're there for you and you can open up your heart and pour it out. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously my wife is, is in that group, but then it's the best friends. The, yeah. The, people that see life the way you do and just understand things and really uh, having that core group, I think is extremely, extremely important. It's amazing. Yeah. One of our last retreats, we talked about like a compound calculator. Like if you have compound interest, it compounds over time, right? Those small regular deposits, just that consistency. You talked about it earlier, you know, spiritual disciplines, physical disciplines, leading to emotional health and all of that. So when you think about, you are obviously, by the way, in my opinion, living a massive life of significance. You and Amanda, the family and the kids, like you're giving lives to things that matter. That's a life of significance. And so when you think about what you're investing in your life into in Haiti, uh, regardless of how much longer that is or how long, if it's the rest of your life, what do you hope that your investment compounds into? The biggest thing I want to see compounded would be um, like the daily disciplines and integrity and just pushing people towards living a life that uh, that compounds into it, it coming automatically. Integrity, hard work, and discipline. And it always starts small. And uh, I mean, we talk about you, you, if you're getting 1% better or a half percent better every day, well, in a whole year, you're, you're getting, if you're doing a half a percent every day, you're talking about close to 200% better in a year. And uh, morally... And, and what you want to see compounded in people's lives is hard work, discipline, and integrity. Mm. If you have those three, man, it, you're, you're pretty much unstoppable. Mm. And uh, it applies to physical, it applies to emotional health, mm. and it applies to spiritually. Um, a lot of people kind of, especially spiritually, you look at like the day you got saved or you were baptized with the Holy Spirit or something. That's like one monumental, you know, it looked like, things increase by 500% in one day. But the real challenge is constantly improving and compounding that over a year or two or five or 10. And uh, continuing to be challenged to keep working on all three phases of your life. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but if I had to say, you know, one thing, it's, for me, it's integrity, integrity and just being an honest person, being somebody that people can trust. Mm -hmm. 
and being able to put that out there so that others are challenged to do that too mm -hmm. and to really go after becoming a good father, a mm -hmm. good husband, a good friend mm -hmm. and just be that, mm -hmm. you know, compounding into that mm -hmm. it, it, and it becoming more like Jesus, yeah. really, you know. Yeah. He was probably the perfect friend. I don't know that he was a husband or a father, you know, it does scripture doesn't but you know what I'm saying, if, yeah. if he would have been, mm. uh, what that looks like. Yeah. And uh, just constantly being improving and spending time yeah. with the Father and continuing to move yeah. forward. And seeing a cultural shift is really what I'm hearing. You want to see a cultural shift out of that ideally. Everybody wants to see that. You want yeah. to see it in Haiti. You want to see it in the U.S. <laughs> yeah. You want to see it everywhere. Yeah. But it starts with one individual. Come on. And then that compounds into two and yeah. then four and then eight and then 16, you know, yeah. and... Starting, it's very basic. Yeah. It feels very basic when you start. Yeah. But if that's your goal and you stay disciplined in it, yeah. it can lead to great things. Yeah. Well, I just want to even want to thank you for your friendship, man. Even, you know, the Bwabicon community, especially that project. It's like I tell everybody, I've seen a lot in missions. I've traveled a bit. I don't want to say that I've ever, I don't want to say it's better than anything I've ever seen in missions but I've never seen anything better in my opinion, just like what God did there, the way the community, the caliber of leaders, the story there. And man, just every time a team comes down, like they either don't want to come home or they're ready, like how do we go back and just connect with you guys as a family? And so um, I just want to thank you. That's all. Thank you for what you guys are doing. Thank you for investing your entire lives into significance thank you for inviting some of us onto the journey with you guys inviting us into your lives into your home into the story um thanks for taking time today i just yeah just love you guys is what i'm trying to say incredible story incredible privilege um just so believe in you and thanks for investing your life yeah absolutely i mean we couldn't do it alone yeah so yeah uh a lot of what we do, I mean, I'm receiving the thanks for a lot of these things and the projects and different things, and I, I don't feel worthy of receiving them because it's people here that have made them possible. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we we definitely experience and feel tons of gratitude mm. to the people behind us as well. Yeah, so good. Thank you and shout out to anybody that's invested funds into the project, served on a team, connected with Jason and Amanda relationally. If you want to learn more about the Haiti Project, you can check out our website, allianceus.org. Again, allianceus.org. Check out the Haiti Project. Try and keep that updated, current uh, initiatives, current focus, current vision. But um, thanks so much again. And safe travels as you journey back in a few days. Uh, hope to be down there with you guys sometime soon. So bless you guys, man. Awesome. Thank you.